Lord, let's pray together. God, we're so thankful for your word. We thank you for the promise within your word that it will not return void, that you will accomplish the purpose that you have for it. And so God, we pray that you would do just that with this passage. What I pray is we approach this strong warning, God, that you would give us soft hearts, receptive hearts, open hearts for what you have to say to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. On the coastline of Japan, by the little village of Aniyoshi, there are these ancient stone tablets, and engraved on them is a somber warning. It says, remember the calamity of the great tsunami. Do not build any homes beyond this point. Now, in 2011, a great tsunami did indeed strike the coast of Japan, and even though tens of thousands of lives were lost, those who built their home above this warning marker, these stone tablets in Aniyoshi, survived. The people of this village, they wisely listened to the ancient warnings and were saved. As effective as these tsunami stone tablets are, I want to remind us that we have something much more effective in God's word, that we have warnings that are all throughout the Bible. There are dozens of warnings here that are not written on stone tablets to save physical lives, but we have warnings contained in God's word that are meant to save our very souls. The warning here in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians is strong. It is powerful. It is very convicting. And it's gonna challenge us to have a heart that is open and that is receptive for what God wants to do within it. As we look at this passage, the first thing that I wanna point out for us is the warning that Paul provides for us as he gives a little bit of review from the Old Testament. We have these warnings from the the wilderness that Israel uh, experienced. And in verses one through six, he gives these descriptions. And all throughout these verses, Paul is comparing Israel with the Corinthians. Now, Paul is moving from chapter nine, where he used his own life and ministry as an example to follow, as an example to imitate. Well, now he's moving into chapter 10, using Israel as an example of what not to do. This is a a warning to heed. And what's interesting here is he begins chapter 10. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. He's saying that because the Corinthians had maybe the facts about the, uh, Israel's past, about what happened in the wilderness. But Paul does not want them to miss the significance of Israel and the warning that it provides for the Corinthians. Paul even says in verse six that, that these things happened to Israel in the Old Testament and they serve as examples for us today. This is a warning for us to heed. Now, let me point out a very significant uh, parallel in the structure of this passage. When you look at verses one through four, Paul contains four spiritual blessings that the Israelites enjoyed. And then he's going to contrast that with four strong admonitions in verses seven through 10. That's for the Corinthians. These are areas that, that the nation of Israel failed at. Let's look first at these four blessings that Israel enjoyed. The first one here in verse one, Paul says that all of Israel, they were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now under the cloud, this refers to the divine protection, the divine direction that God gave his people throughout the wilderness. 
And then through the sea obviously refers to the miraculous deliverance through God parting the Red Sea so that Israel could escape uh, from the Egyptian rule. It was the first blessing that they uh, enjoyed. But the second one here is that all of Israel were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now this is a, a confusing phrase, but remember baptism in part is about identification that today we are baptized into Christ, into uh, the church. And because Moses was a prefigurement of Christ, where uh, Moses was somewhat of Israel's deliverer, pointing forward to Christ being our deliverer today. So they identified with Moses. That was another blessing. And then thirdly, they ate the same spiritual food. Verse three now, this refers to the manna, the, the bread that God miraculously supernaturally provided for his people to sustain them through the wilderness. And then the fourth blessing, notice there in verse four, that they drank of a spiritual rock. Remember when Moses struck that rock and, and clean water came from that, God again provided miraculously and supernaturally in order to sustain his people through the wilderness. Now, Paul highlights these four just incredible blessings, these four incredible things that Israel was able to uh, experience. But then he comes to verse five and he says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased and they were overthrown or they, or they died in the wilderness. Now, when you look at verse five, the word most should pop out to you. That word is being contrasted to the word all, which Paul has emphasized in the first four verses. This word all, Paul used five different times in the first four verses where he's saying all of Israel experienced this blessing, all of Israel experienced that blessing. And then he gets to verse five and he says, however, most of them, God was not pleased. Paul's point is that despite all of these spiritual blessings, most of Israel became spiritually disqualified. That despite the faithfulness of God through the cloud, through parting the Red Sea, through providing daily manna and clean water, the nation of Israel went back to idolatry time and time again. Like, don't miss the point of these verses. The point is not to get sucked into the fascinating typology in this passage. The point is not to get sucked into the preexistence of Christ in Israel's history. The point here, and what Paul will drive home in verses six through 11, is that Paul is urging the Corinthians to learn from Israel's past and to view the unfaithfulness of Israel as a warning for the Corinthians to heed despite the blessings that the nation of Israel experienced. See, specifically here, and the warning for us today is to be aware of the danger of just assuming that you are running the Christian race well, just because you can point to spiritual blessings in your life. Beware of the danger of just assuming that you are doing fine spiritually because you can point to religious activities. See, the nation of Israel, they had these miraculous, supernatural blessings from God. They were a nation filled with religious activities. And yet inwardly, their hearts were far from God. 
that they fell into idolatry time and time again because of the condition of their hearts. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the Corinthians for a moment. You're reading this passage. There's a clear connection Paul's making between the Corinthians and the Israelites. And if you're in Corinth, you're, you're reading this letter from the father in the faith, the, the one who planted this church, they would have read this passage and, and they could have heard the apostle Paul say this to them, that all of the Corinthians have been delivered by Jesus. All of the Corinthians have been baptized into Jesus. All of the Corinthians have been spiritually gifted by the spirit of God. All of the Corinthians experienced the Lord's supper. But could it be that God was not pleased with most of them? because of the condition of their hearts. This passage would have fell on this church exactly like that, where they start to put themselves in the shoes of the Israelites. And I just wonder if this morning for us today, right now in this moment, if through the spirit of God and through his word, if God could be asking us a similar question, could God be saying to us today that all of Pennington Park comes to church every Sunday? That all of Pennington Park serves throughout the church? All of Pennington Park is part of a Bible study or a small group, but could God be asking us the question, could God not be pleased with some of us today because of the condition of our hearts? See, that's an important question to ask. The important question is, how do you know if you are heeding this warning? How do you know if you are falling into idolatry, just like the Israelites did, just like the Corinthians did, even though you have spiritual blessings and religious activities in your life? See, this question of, of how can you inspect your life, how can you heed a warning in the Bible is so important because what we tend to do in heeding these warnings is we point to religious activities. We say to ourselves, of course God is pleased with me. I go to church every week. Of course God is pleased with me. I do my devotions every day. Of course, God is pleased with me. I'm a member of this church. I serve, I do this, I do that. And we point to things that we do and we tend to avoid the condition of our hearts. Look, all those things are good and, and important. But what's most important is what's going on in here. What's going on underneath the surface, underneath all of your spiritual activities? See, and, and Paul knew this. I think that's why in verse six, Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire, or this word could be translated as crave or lust or long for evil as they did. Now, where do our desires live? Where do our cravings live? They, they live in our hearts. And so to, to take this warning and to analyze that, if we're heeding this warning, we have to inspect the condition of our hearts where our desires and our cravings live. And Paul, again, he knows that. 
And he helps us here in this passage. What I think he does here in, in verses seven through 11 is he provides a heart level evaluation as we compare our lives with the Israelites and even with the Corinthians here. So we're gonna walk through these four areas, these four admonitions in verses seven through 11 as a way to evaluate the condition of our own hearts to see if we are heeding this warning. Notice the first one, verse seven, we have the first evaluation that is centered on idolatry centered on idolatry. Verse seven, out of the four admonitions, this is the only one in which Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 32, verse six. And Paul highlights this verse from Exodus. This is the scene where they're, they're worshiping the golden calf. But what he quotes here is the eating and the drinking and the playing. That's interesting because Paul's tying in that theme with something that has reverberated through chapters eight, nine, and 10 throughout 1 Corinthians. What's interesting about this is Paul doesn't really mention the golden calf. Paul's more interested in the eating and the drinking and the playing that was associated with the worshiping of idols and the worshiping of this golden calf. See, the Israelites in Exodus chapter 32 were eating and they were drinking in the presence of this golden calf. And what Paul seems to be inferring here is that eating in the presence of overt idol worship is an issue of idolatry, something that he will be explicit on in verses 20 through 21. Paul's basically kind of tipping his hand about what the Corinthians should be doing as far as eating the meat being sacrificed to idols, as they're, they're kind of presented with this option, should we attend the, these temple cultic dinners or not? And he's gonna be more explicit with that in the next passage. Now for us, the warning and, and the temptation is not about worshiping a golden calf. Like you and I are really not tempted to worship an image, but the temptation that you and I face every single day is to take things in our lives, whether they're good or sinful. And the temptation is to allow those things to become ultimate in our lives. So take these things, even, even good gifts that God has given us, and we are tempted to love them more than we love God. And that's idolatry. And we can take anything and make it into an idol. We can take money, we can take a career, we can take a spouse, a child, or we can take pleasure, we can take possessions, comfort, you name it. And when we allow those things to become ultimate, that's when it becomes an idol. And, and the danger here is that you can even trust in God. You can trust in God for your eternity, and yet functionally, you can have a different savior. You, you can trust in God for heaven, Okay, God, you've got my eternity. But the question is, is what do you turn to? What do you rely upon? What do you live for day in and day out functionally? Is it God? Is it, is it truly Jesus? Or is it something else? Has something else captured your affections and your desires besides Jesus? Is there something else that's, that's defining you, that's defining your, your worth and your identity, that, that's validating your existence besides Jesus? See, idolatry here, the, the issue is, is when you look inside your heart 
And we all have this throne room that's in our hearts. And when you look and you inspect, what is on the throne of my heart? The question is, is it truly King Jesus that is there residing on the throne of your heart, that's directing your life, that's impacting your desires, that's driving your decisions? Or is it something else? See, don't just inspect your activity and your actions. Get to the heart of the matter to see what is on the throne of your life. So that's the first evaluation. Paul comes with a heavy punch there in verse seven, but then in verse eight, he talks about sexual morality. Verse eight, Paul's warning here, he's connecting this idea of, of idolatrous practice with sexual immorality. I think the passage that he has in mind here is from Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25, where the, the, the people of, of Israel were engaging in idolatrous activity that included sexual immorality. And the result there was that 23,000 Israelites died. Now the joining together of idol worship and, and sexual immorality was very applicable to Corinth. This is something that, that this church that we've seen has struggled with. Chapters five and six, we dealt with sexual morality. And what happened in Corinth is that at these temple cultic dinners, it wasn't just about the, these, these idols that were being worshiped and, and the meat that was being sacrificed. There was sexual morality all around them at these temples. And so people from this church were attending these dinners and these, these celebrations, and there's all kinds of sexual morality going on all around them. And so Paul is warning them of this, of the danger that they're putting themselves in. Now for us this morning, in evaluating our own hearts as it relates to sexual sin, do not make the mistake of only inspecting the outward activity of sexual immorality. You must look at your heart. That's exactly what Jesus challenged us with in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Look, the challenge church is not just about avoiding going to that hotel room with someone who is not your spouse. The challenge is to avoid looking at someone lustfully in your heart. The challenge is not just about avoiding pornography. The challenge is, is not to look at somebody sinfully in your heart and in your mind. It's not just about the activity, it's about the heart. What's going on in here? Thirdly, the, the other heart evaluation test that Paul gives us occurs in verse nine. It's the issue of testing here. The Israelite example Paul has in mind here most certainly was Numbers chapter 21 where the Israelites were speaking out against God, speaking out against Moses because they were tired of the manna. They were tired of, of the bread that God had miraculously and supernaturally given to them on a daily occurrence that they wanted something else. They wanted something more. And so they were testing Moses. They were testing God. In fact, the word to test here means to challenge, means to, to doubt someone or to doubt something. And that's exactly what was happening in Numbers 21. 
the nation of Israel, their hearts did not have a posture of trust towards God, towards, towards Moses' leadership. They thought they knew better than Moses. They thought they knew better than God. And that's exactly what was happening at the church here in Corinth. We, we've seen that, especially even last week. They were testing the apostle Paul, questioning his authority. They did not like his exhortations towards avoiding sexual morality and, and, and towards marriage and towards avoiding these temple dinners. And so they were testing Paul. They were testing ultimately God. And I think through thinking about this, I think when you get to the heart level, when you get underneath the surface there, I think the issue here revolves around discontentment. I think there is a connection here between testing God and being discontent. See, for the Israelites who were complaining and testing God about the daily manna, they wanted something more. They wanted something else. They were not content in the manna that God was providing for them on a daily occurrence. They wanted something else. Look, just by way of application this morning, I just wanna ask you, in, in what ways are you perhaps testing God? In what ways? Maybe if God is, is providing for you on a, on a daily basis, his grace and his strength and his wisdom, he's providing for you daily manna. And yet, are you responding to that in some way with saying to God, maybe not out loud, but maybe in your heart saying to the Lord, God, that's not enough for me. That daily grace, that daily wisdom, that daily strength, that, that's not enough for me. I need something more. I need something else. I don't just need daily grace. I, I need grace for tomorrow. I need grace for next week. I need grace for next year. In what way are you perhaps testing God with a heart of discontentment toward his daily sustaining of you? I was reading this this week and studying this and felt like the Lord was convicting my own heart of this. Lindsay and I are praying and we're thinking through school options for next year with our kids. And this is something that we do every year. We just lay this decision before the Lord and, and it feels such like a significant decision, especially this year, it kind of feels overwhelming. And, and I, can, I, I can even notice my heart like going down this road of not just wanting from God, but almost demanding from God to give me not just daily grace, not just daily wisdom with this decision, but I want wisdom. I want to know what the right school decision is for my kids, not just for this year, but even for next year, for the year after that, for 12, 13 years down the road. And, and I'm noticing my heart come to this place of just being discontent with just trusting in God today. <laughs> This daily manna that God promises to give me, daily wisdom and daily grace, my heart is saying, God, I want more. I want next year. I want the year after that. I want to know the right decision 12 years down the road. And, and I've just been sensing the Lord just kind of whisper back to me, Chris, that's not what I've promised you. I've not promised you tomorrow's grace today. I've not promised you next year's grace Today, I've promised to give you grace for today, wisdom today, everything that you need right now, you're gonna have to trust me. And I think that's the challenge as we follow the Lord, as we lay before him decisions that we're making to be, to be content with what he provides for us right now today and to avoid 
going into this space of becoming discontent and almost testing God for more. And I wonder if you can relate to that. I wonder if there are areas in your own life, maybe where you're putting God to the test because of a level of discontentment in your own life. This is exactly what was happening to the Israelites. This is what happened with the Corinthians. And this is a warning we are to avoid. And then the fourth one, verse 10, see the fourth admonition, this fourth heart level evaluation, if you will, has to do with grumbling. The Israelites were often seen as complaining towards Moses and towards God, grumbling. And the result all throughout the Old Testament was that they died. In various situations, there was death. And we can even see the, the grumbling throughout this letter as Paul is responding back to them. We can sense kind of their complaining about Paul's leadership and the way that Paul is speaking into this church. And yet, what's underneath the grumbling, what's underneath the complaining to God is a heart of unbelief. It is a heart that is failing to believe that this situation, this trial, this circumstance can be for my good and God's glory. And so we complain about it. We, we, we grumble about it. We don't like this thing, whatever it is, because we're failing to trust that God is going to use this to grow us and to glorify his name. And so we grumble about it. And yet Jesus warns us in Luke 6, 45, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That our grumbling, our complaining reveals the condition of our hearts. We have to address the hearts. Verse 11, Paul reminds the Corinthians, look, these things were written down to help us, to warn us. These are examples, even examples to avoid. And so this morning, I just wanna stop here and just ask you, how are you doing with this heart level evaluation? When you think about idolatry, you think about sexual morality, you think about testing and grumbling, how are you doing with inspecting, not just the activity up here, but beneath the surface, what's going on in your heart? Have you been assuming that you are doing fine spiritually because you can point to this blessing and that blessing and this religious activity and this spiritual activity, but are you really addressing the heart? Like if you're struggling with one of these four areas, one thing I know that's true is that you're probably experiencing a lack of peace, a lack of joy in God that perhaps you can relate with maybe the Israelites. Maybe you feel like you're just wandering through the wilderness, wandering through the dry desert, exhausted and dry and lonely and empty. Well, how does Paul help us? How does Paul counsel the Corinthians who might've been struggling with some of the same things? How would he counsel us today as we experience some of these uh, th these temptations and the sin in our life. Well, in verses 12 through 13, I'll close with this this morning. There is a, a plan that I think Paul lays out here for overcoming temptation. He provides three encouraging truths to remind us as we're battling temptation, as we're waging war against the sin that might be in our heart. These are truths to help anchor us. Here's the first thing in verse 12, is to be on guard against pride. Be on guard against pride. He says specifically here, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed or be careful lest he 
fall. Now, Paul, I think, is is speaking directly to those who are strong in conscience at the church in Corinth, those who thought that they were invincible to the temptations all around them as they were putting themselves in this environment of the temple pagan dinners where there's idolatry taking place, there's sexual morality all around them. And those who were strong in conscience were thinking, man, I'm immune to sin. I'm immune to the, the temptations around me. And that is the danger of pride. When pride enters the heart, it convinces the individual that they are almost immune to sin, that they are so mature, they have so much knowledge, so much theology, that they will never succumb to temptation. That's part of the danger. The, The danger of pride is that it not only makes our conscience callous, but the danger of pride is that it blinds us to its own existence in our lives. That a prideful person almost never knows that they are prideful. That the pride convinces them, you don't have this in your life, you're fine. Look at how much you know. Look at the religious activity that you're doing and yet it's hiding away in our hearts, blinding us to its own existence. Paul says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, be careful lest he fall. So what do we do? Since all of us have some aspect of pride in our lives, what do we do? Well, my encouragement here is to find people in your life who love you, who know you, who see the blind spots in your life and who have full permission to point out those blind spots in your life, in your heart. Find those people that you trust that are for you, where you can ask them, hey, what evidence of pride do you see in my life? And out of humility, be open to receiving what they have to say. Another encouragement Paul provides, I think in this plan, this strategy against temptation is to understand that you are not alone. You are not alone. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. All right, now the temptation that the Corinthians were facing living in Corinth is that there's idolatry and there's sexual morality all around them in this, in this city. As they're walking the streets, they can see these temples and, and they are being tempted to be pulled into these type of cultic temple dinners. And this was such a strong temptation for them because at these temple dinners, this is where the networking t- took place in the city. This is where you made connections And so for them to avoid these environments was almost a form of social and financial suicide. And yet for them to to avoid this temptation was going to allow them to stay faithful to the Lord. So Paul reminds them, look, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. I think this is so helpful for us because one of the things that we are tempted to believe, whether you're going through temptation or going through a trial, is that I'm the only one who's going through this right now. No one else understands what it's like to go through this right now. And you feel like you are alone. And when you fall into that place, into that belief, it's so easy to go to the next step and to say, because this temptation is unique, because this trial is unique, therefore it is unbearable. And when you get to that place, it's so easy to then conclude, therefore maybe God doesn't understand what I'm going through. 
Maybe God has forgotten about me. Maybe God is now distant in my life because of this temptation and because of this trial. And yet Paul reminds us, such a helpful reminder, that there is no temptation in trials. These are common to humanity. And I think that's encouraging, both on a horizontal level as we think about our own lives and our own experiences and being able to encourage each other. But I think this is also true vertically with God. Even Hebrews chapter four, verses 15 and 16, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look, can I be honest for, for a moment this morning? We love the grace and the mercy piece, but we fail to understand that in order to receive that, we have to draw near to the throne of grace to receive it. And the reality is, is that we will only draw near to that throne when we are convinced that God is with us, that God is for us, that God sympathizes with what we go through and that we are not alone in this. That God wants us to draw near. He wants to give us the grace and mercy that we need in our time of need. You are not alone. And then thirdly, I think the last thing that Paul reminds us with so we think about just the kind of a plan against temptation, overcoming temptation. Verse 13, to cling to the faithfulness of God in the midst of hardship. Paul just declares, God is faithful. And the reality is, is that I love this. Paul is not declaring this while he's on the mountaintop. He's not declaring this when everything is easy, everything is going smoothly. He is declaring this in the midst of his own church that he planted was about to split apart because of division. He is declaring this when his own authority as an apostle is being questioned. He is declaring to the Corinthians, God is faithful. And look, this is a truth that we must preach to our own hearts. When you're going through temptation, you're going through trials, God is faithful. God is there with you in that trial. God is fighting for you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And that in God, he lacks no spiritual resources. And knowing that God is generous, he will give you everything that you need to remain faithful and godly during that trial and during that temptation. Like it's amazing. He, he reminds us of who God is. He is faithful. And I love that because sometimes when you're going through a trial or temptation, you don't know what's going on. You don't know why this is happening. But what we need more than anything is not the why, it's not the what. We need to know the who. And the who here, according to Paul, is that God is faithful and he's with you and he's providing everything that you need to live a godly life. And I love that Paul also provides two ways here that God is faithful. Verse 13, God is faithful in the fact that he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability or beyond what you can bear, meaning God will give you exactly what you need in order to be faithful in that trial and in that temptation. And then finally, God is faithful in the way that he will always provide a way of escape. 
That's such a good reminder. When you're being tempted, when you're going through a trial, sometimes it feels like sin is the only option. You wanna give in or you wanna give up. And yet Paul is reminding us that that's not the only option. God is providing a way of escape by trusting in his faithfulness as he provides exactly what you need. God is faithful. Look, in conclusion, just like the Corinthians, we need to heed this warning against idolatry, against sexual morality, against testing and grumbling by not just pointing to our activity, not just pointing to things on the surface, but by looking at the heart and being reminded that God is faithful. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, for this passage, we thank you for the strong warning that it provides. Lord, help us to do the hard work of inspecting our own hearts. Lord, thank you that you are at work. Thank you that you are revealing things within us that by your spirit, you're convicting us. And God, I pray that you'd give us the openness to just, just lay before you and say, oh God, search my heart, reveal the iniquity that might be there. God, we want to be faithful to you. We want to heed this warning. So God, guide us as we search our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.